But anyway, on the way back, I met this land girl on the train. There were two land girls, and it was it was a crowded wartime train. You can't imagine what a wartime train was like. Sort of soldiers, sailors, and Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So, today uh, we're getting better acquainted with my father. Uh, and we're recording now, Dad. So, yes. <laughs> Indeed, I am your father, yeah. So, the standard questions that I ask just to start with yeah. is how I met the person, but obviously, I guess the, when I was born was when you met me. Yes, that's, I did actually Literally, meet you when you were born, because I was present, yeah. Okay. okay um, let's got rid of that one. And the yeah. other question is, uh, what do you do now? What do I do? Yes, what do you do? In what sense? I mean, well, it's like, I guess the idea is that the beginning is small talk. So when yes. you meet someone at a party, yes. Yes. you say, well, what do you yes. do? Well, like, I, I, mean, I didn't want to say, what do you do for a I living? Fill in, I was going to say, I mean, what I fill in in, ref- in forms is always retired, or retired books. Um, so I am retired. But what do I do? It then becomes very complex because it is spreads over the whole of the, you know, I get up, I, well, I still write. Yeah. And I'm interested. I still have some faith in my reason for writing, yeah. I enjoy company, people I like. I enjoy the world, yes, I do. Yes. So that, I'm very pessimistic, but I actually have a very enjoyable life. Just to give the, the listeners some context, we're, we're doing this, this uh, first uh, interview together um, in Stansted Airport. Okay, we're in kind of no country at the moment because we've been through customs, so we, we were outside of any... We're international, and we're in a we're in a Weatherspoons pub waiting for some food, which will probably arrive as part of this, this interview, and uh, having a drink. Um, we're going to Germany. Well, I guess, actually, in a way, maybe we should talk about the war, actually. I was going to do do, do something else, but, but we were going to Germany... To from, see from Britain, your half sister, to see my, my sister, daughter, yeah. and uh, her family, mm-hmm. um, and okay. yeah, I, I guess yeah. Let's talk about All right. the war when you, you didn't go to Germany, but you fought against Germany. Well, actually, I had a very interesting conversation with my friend Eric Davison last night, who is more or less most the same age, a little bit younger than me. So he didn't actually serve in the war, but he lived through it, and he did national service after. And we were talking about the fact that there is a kind of thing about having lived through a war. And it's not to do with the, all the sort of triumphalism or the politics and that. It's just the fact that you are living in a rather strange way in society, which everybody accepts and knows about. So it's quite natural. Well, we're living through a war now, I guess. We we're living through a well, series of wars, but they're not... It's they're not, not the same kind of war. They're not conscription. No, and it's not. It's not a, a national war. So when did every person in this room would be aware? It's a very different kind of thing. So for us, for I mean, for so you're you're 87 now. Yeah. When, when did the war started? I was 16. And did you join? Did you did you sign up or were you no, pushed? I was called up at the age of 18, which oh, yeah. was 1942. Thank you. Yes, please. Thanks. And check for the chair. 
Thank Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Now, okay, so we're. What do we do? Do well, we, we pause? eat? No, 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 no. no. This is part good. of this kind of good. Good. Yeah. podcasting. The new. Yes. We've, they feel like they're in the experience with us, you know. Yeah. So we've got our food here. Yeah. Um, food? So. Yeah. Yeah. Food that, that when you were when we're talking about the time we're talking about this kind of food would have been oh, you very rare, wouldn't it? I mean. Chips. Yeah. Burger. I don't know. That was an American. I can't. My memory is not very good too. I'm sorry, seven years. But I would think. That would have been a rarity or something you saw in American films if you saw it at all. It was nice. Certainly meat would have been rationed. Yeah. Oh yes. So yeah. you were called up you were called up at sixteen? No, eighteen. Eighteen. So you had two your, years. Well your eighteenth birthday you maybe you will be called up, you know, after that, according to the sort of you were called up in sort of levies obviously in relation to training and all that. And do you remember how you felt about the idea of uh, I didn't particularly... Well, yes, I do remember a conversation in Oxford Street because I was working in films before I went... I'd, I'd been working in films for about a year. But I remember this conversation in Oxford Street with Tony Thompson's wife, who we were all left-wing in those days. <laughs> and um, they were... She was a communist, he wasn't. And I remember I was sort of complaining to some extent about having to go and join the army. And she was doing a sort of totally strange kind of communist thing about you should be pleased you're going to fight the great war again you're going to sort of save the soviet union or, or at least be you know it was very well, the soviet union ended up on the side of well they but by then they were on our side in ah, okay, okay. after that because there was the hitler fact, they they're not Stalin on our Pact, side we should say we were, on, we were on their side they won us because the they won the war yeah. Yeah. or at least their terrain won the war yeah they're alive when the war. That's that, yeah. So you were signed up. Anyway, so I had to join up. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, for some months before you were actually called up, you were you were called up. You were sort of had to register. So you go to a local address which they give you, which in my case was a drill hall somewhere in London. You have a medical. Because the first thing you have to decide is whether you were. I mean, if you've got flat feet or. And in all sorts of number of aberrations, you may be discarded and not allowed to join, or not not wanted. But if you pass that, then they pass you on to the next stage, which means they can then presumably consider you and consider where they were going to put you, and that would depend upon the number of people they got at any particular time. You know, whether the navy was short, or the air force was short. And how educated you were, and I how guess. educated were you, what skills you offered, yeah. Exactly. And so you were relatively educated? Relatively, because I've been to grammar school, yep. unsuccessfully. But you'd but been? I presumably knew all this, and I had my... And you'd been working... I had my job, knowledge of what job I was You'd been working for a year, being a dog's hmm. body on films. And so they, they said to you, I mean, where, where, where did they decide to put no. you? So... You all got sent for a six weeks induction course, which was an infantry training course, where you were given a rifle and you learnt to drill and you were marched about and learnt how to organise your kit for kit inspection and all this sort of stuff. Bullshit, basically. It was a kind of induction to being out, out of the civvy world and into a world where your life would be, where all ideas of 
civic democracy had to be surrendered to the greater cause. So, okay. I mean, everybody accepted it. <coughs> but, that, you know, that's what I mean life was like. I mean, you were in a controlled situation. And yeah. did you accept it? Yeah, I, in a way I did, yeah. Some... Yeah, I mean, people accepted it variously according to the personality, but this is what I mean about being in a war. It was just something which... You had to do. You had to do, and it was... Therefore, you didn't make... You didn't... You might have made a personal fuss or disliked it. There was no choice, like the big no thing choice. now, choice. No, you couldn't sort of... You couldn't have a, a UK uncut march about it. And you wouldn't have wanted to, because, I mean, you were fighting the Nazis, not um, Cameron. Well, I guess it was it was different from the first... Did it feel different... I mean, you weren't al- alive for the First World War. No, my father was. Your father was, and yeah. he fought in that. Yeah. I mean, was there a sense that this was a different war? Oh, there was, there was. Because the First World War was a... Which you... I mean, it's not known now. The First World War was a real and total disaster. Yeah. I mean, that was like the Russian War and the Second World War. I mean, the number of people who were killed and decimated... And, just running into machine guns and being massacred. That was a crazy war. And so, but that was in very much in the national memory when the Second World War started. You know, there was all this looking back to the First World War. And it felt like more of a just war, did it? It felt like more of a just war. The whole business of regimentation of the army, of fighting in that kind of way, gave way to sort of a theoretically democratic army. They put you in the um, as a radio. They put you straight in as a radio operator. No, as I say, that you went on a set. Everybody, everybody, unless they went straight into what to Santos. You know, there were some people were in, were actually straight into officer training if they were sort of from universities or. But the rest of you did no, basic. The rest of you all did basic training. Okay. It was six weeks. Then. So you learned how to fire a gun. Yeah, you learn how to fire a rifle, uh, take a brain gun to bits, you know, fire a brain gun, take it to bits, put it together again in X, X seconds plus, you know. We had a sergeant called Seal. He was a little chap. He was a typical sergeant, you know, shouted at you and was that. And he, um, he was all right. I mean, everybody disliked him in one way, but he, he you know, he was... Play- he was it was kind of caricature. I mean, he was playing the role of sergeant. He probably was a regular, I can't remember, but then he would have been delegated to training. And he was like a caricature of a sergeant, you know, he used to shout at you. And then. But he was very good because I met, I had, in the middle of my, that training, I had to go, I was given compassionate leave, un- unexpectedly to me, because my father was meant to be dying. He had tuberculosis and he was exhausted. So I, I was given compassionate leave and I got on a train to go down to see him. And he ironically told me he wasn't dying. Right? But anyway, on the way back, I met this land girl on the train. There were two land girls and it was, it was a crowded wartime train. You can't imagine what a wartime train was like. Sort of soldiers, sailors, bang. I met this land girl and we had a sort of brief... We didn't have any, I mean, we were on the train. We had a sort of, you can't call it a relationship, but we got very friendly on that. And somehow or other, I told her where I was. Right? And when we went on a route march one day, I remember she and her friend suddenly appeared. This was near the end of our basic training and joined the ranks. And Sergeant Seal, who was this kind of regular, tough, you know, Kipling esque sergeant, 
He didn't mind, he accepted it. There was a strange mixture of authoritarianism and... We could of, die tomorrow. We could die tomorrow and also a kind of working class thing. But, you know, we're not, we're not the fucking toffs, we're not the officers and all that, you know. I don't know. It's very difficult to put your finger on it. And it's interesting what you say though about class, because you've... When we've sort of spoken about class before, mm-hmm. you know, you've sort of... The, the general feeling we've, I think, both of us sort of have come to or have discussed, it's been that you being in the army sort of took you out of class, like put everyone together and suddenly everyone could understand each other as human beings as well as... To an extent that's what happened in the war. That's partly why 1945 happened, partly why there was a Labour government and this thing of everybody's coming back, we're not having what happened last time, we're not having the depression. We won't be controlled by these rich people, we Mm -hmm. will take control. Mm And the officers were very, I mean, the officers in the regular army were, of course, you know, from the ruling class. But by the time the war was over, I mean, officers could be, you know, they, lot, most of them were middle class, bank managers. But there was social yeah. mobility, well, this, was this social phrase mobility. that they talk about now, it was exactly. in the army. Yeah, and some, you know, I'm afraid it was what Cameron protests, what these idiots protest is true now. We're all in this together, that there was a strange feeling. And a somewhat genuine feeling during the war that we were all used to that, but partly because we were. I mean, it was forced upon you. you a bomb doesn't go, I'm going to explode on a, <laughs> no, a poor no. person or a, a rich person, it explodes yeah, the Germans on. are trying to defeat us, yeah. And if they do, yeah. You know, you could be and so William or you could be... Do you think yeah. that your kind of class consciousness, because, I mean, you obviously you were a lower middle class? I think to begin with probably it's probably uh, how, yeah and then having been in the yeah. army yeah. you have a much greater sense having been in the army of the working class situation do you think? oh yeah yeah did I your mean, cl- sort of class consciousness begin in the army i guess is what i'm asking my experiential class consciousness began in the army i mean before i went in the army i was a, my father was always a socialist. Yeah, he was a socialist. He was a socialist. He believed in socialism. I never knew him all that well in some ways, but I mean, he did. Yeah. So I had a kind of background. I wasn't. So you were primed, and you had teachers at school who were radical and left-wing. Yeah. But yeah, you actually met. But you met. You met. I lived with in the. You know, not in slip trenches. That makes it sound like um, Guadalcanal or something like that. But I mean. Yeah, we did actually have to dig slit trenches pointlessly because we were based around the Lacac battery, which wasn't going to be bombed or what was very unlikely to be. So you dig slit trench and put your tent out, I can't remember what it was called, above it. So, and you're in it with two other guys or one other guy. So, for the first time in your life, really, you're yeah. um, socially interacting with people from different classes. Absolutely. And they were socially interacting with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was there much radical feeling within the army? There was a lot. That's why 1945 happened. People were politicised. Yeah, and, and you had a different... You were already beginning to get... Um, we didn't have the internet or anything, but you, you were beginning to get a national press. So the Daily Mirror 
which was the kind of that I mean, way. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the Daily Worker, but it was the Daily Worker. Yeah. Mer- in this country, the Daily, the, the, the people who ran all the army newspapers, I forget what it was called, but there was an army newspaper in this country. And, um, you know, it was just distributed. They were all Daily Mirror journalists. And it was virtually the same thing. And there was this kind of thing about it's not going to be the same this time. I mean, it would have been very difficult. For the Conservatives to have denied, I mean, actually, they, they, they accepted the welfare state until Thatcher. But it would have been very difficult for them to... At that time... Even Churchill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there was a kind of consensual well, I think feeling that... Regardless of Churchill having gassed the Kurds and various other things that I think mm-hmm. don't make him such a hero, what? he did at least say, you know, there's, what's the point in winning the war or something like that if we cut our um, funding? That? Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a quote. I don't know the exact quote, but it keeps being used now by the left. Look, Churchill said, don't cut the art. It seems to me he was needed for the time. Yeah, he was. He was, um... he was in the right place at the right time and he was a good person to have there. I mean, you could equally say that Hitler was in the right place at the right time. I mean, it depends what you mean. But anyway... Well, except that he failed. Yeah, he's... But then, you can't say that Churchill, right? I mean, I mean, you'd have to say Stalin, right? And Stalin <laughs> Ultimately, history wins, doesn't it? History wins. So you, you'd finish your basic training. Oh, yeah. Then they decided to make you a radio operator. Yeah, wireless operator. Wireless yeah. operator. A radio. Drive a wireless operator. That was my title. And that was a lucky break for you, no, would you no, say? No. Wireless operators were needed in all arms of the army. I mean, the infantry had sets which their wireless operators carried. Field artillery had wireless operators with them. It was the communication. So it wasn't the fact it's that the you... equivalent of... I mean, you had... It, it was... So they were like a you, medic you standing, as well. You always had a medic, didn't you, whatever yeah. you were as well. Yeah. If you would be far enough behind the lines and you had time, you would then establish a telephone network. That's one of the things we did. You you would lay out a telephone network between the batteries. Okay. But if you're moving, the means of communication was by wireless. But these were very old-fashioned sets. I mean, they were sets with valves. They were bloody big. You know, so, by present-day standards, they were a Don 8 a D19 set was about that big, which is about for our radio listeners. That's, that's about. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Three foot, three, three foot. foot, you know, and a foot, and they're quite heavy. And you had to. So what? You, when you went on the course, which I was totally in that wrong, the equipment. You had to learn about the valve. You had to learn how a radio set worked and how to change the valves and that. That was one part, of course. The other part was what is called procedure, which was you had a sort of strict verbal procedure, the way you addressed. You know, you didn't just get on and chat. You had to get on and say sort of, I can't remember it now, but no, I don't know. Whatever your call sign. Yeah, like, like ham radio or something. Yeah. You say like, yeah. 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 Um, because it was a means of communication. So your great no, luck wasn't really related no. to the so allocation no. of your situation. No. Well, that was true. But then, the next thing was, who as a radio operator are you going to be assigned yeah. to? Okay. The infantry, tanks, field artillery, or ridiculously, retrospectively, to the um, to the ACAC. Okay, and I was assigned to a heavy ACAC. What is ACAC? Anti-aircraft rifles. You fired, I mean, in London was, during the Blitz and previously, and, uh, and subsequently, there were 
heavy anti-aircraft batteries all around London, Hampstead Heath and everywhere like that. They had, they depended on radar, which was a great sort of wartime invention, which in fact could identify target aircraft, searchlights, which were used to expose these aircraft, and predictors, which was a, which was a kind of early, very early kind of pre-computer computer, which would actually predict how far the shell had to travel, you know, what charges for whatever. I didn't know this because I wasn't a gunner, but that's what they did. And you had four guns in a troop, and you had three troops in a battery, and they'd be distributed around the place. And you had three batteries in a regiment. So your ACAC regiment was sent to where? Well, well I joined an ACAC regiment, but that was sent out, this was in 1943, the, the, the invasion began in North Africa. The, the, the sort of Ameri Anglo-American invasion had begun in Algiers in North Africa. We were sent out there. So you were sent out to Africa? Yeah, so we went to Algiers. So you'd never been out, had you ever been out of the country before? Um, I don't think I had. So your first, um, so. the first time you left the country, you went to mm. Africa to be part of the in, invasion yeah. of Af the well, occupied parts of Africa. And the invasion had taken place. I mean, the you were counter invasion. Oh, it had already no, happened. No, okay, we were following it up. The British, the Eighth <laughs> Army were then moving. The first army was moving down from Tunisia. Rommel was in the middle. And Rommel up to then had been the king of Africa, been, and the Eighth Army is moving up from the right. So you went to in Africa Mont after it had been won. So you were basically yeah. going somewhere that was being held. Yeah, we were going to defend a, an already won territory. Well, initially, we were, soon when we landed, we were deployed around Algiers. So we were to defend Algiers from any German bombers. Okay. So what was? I do. I think there was one raid. I can't remember any others. What was life like in this Akak regiment in Africa? I really can't remember a lot. Um, things I can remember are eccentric. Well, that's uh, fine. Eccentric's fine. Um, I remember we were, first of all, this is when we had to sort of dig a slip trench. and I can't remember what you were called, but we had these little tents. That, they're like sort of... Not like modern tents, which are... Like teepees? No, yeah, they were, no, they were um, no, ridge tents. Okay. Straight ridge tents. Straight ridge tents. Tent. But for some, because it was kind of, it was a sort of army rule and need that, you, although we, <laughs> we weren't being attacked by any gunfire or anything, you, you had to sort of dig a trench, put your tent up over it. It was a kind of procedure. Was procedure. So we did that. And um, did you shoot very many planes? As I say, I think there was only one raid. But did you shoot planes generally? Well, we would shoot at them if they came over, but the Germans would be very stupid to come over, because by then I think they were pretty well on the way to losing air superiority. Because I, I seem to remember you saying something one time about you just would shoot at any plane. You didn't know what, whether it was ally or... If I said that, I was being reckless. I don't think we would have done that. We might have done Sort of thing the army did, but I don't actually remember that. No, that, that would be unfair to my comrades. Okay. <laughs> Not very many of them will be about, I don't think, anymore. No, no. Um, no. And I think, isn't it? I think Mum 
<laughs> mum presents. I think mum said the only time you were close to action when you were in Africa. Well, no, I don't think it was Africa. This must be later. This must be later. This involves gypsies. So probably it's later on. She said something about the only time you were close to action was when you were in a field having sex with a gypsy woman and you could hear gunfire in the background or something. That's your mother embroidering a story. Sounds like it to me, Um, yeah. I I could tell you that story in a subsequent. But finish that. Yeah, finish this and then get to that story. Finish North Africa. So there we were in Algiers. Then we moved up to Bone. 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 Which is a sort of following the Eighth Army. We moved up. Bone is a port, so we moved up to defend. Where's that in Africa still? Yeah, yeah north okay. on the North African okay. coast. You know, going west to east. Yeah, along there. It's probably in the news at the moment. But um, so we were there. We were there. we were established there to defend Bone, and the, the I think it was Welsh guards. I'm not sure. One of them had a depot nearby, right next to it. Anyway, we were there for a few weeks. We had mosquito nets and these funny tanks and that. There was a kid called Lakador, little Arab boy. He used to throw things at the sparrows in the eucalyptus trees, who became sort of a little mascot, you know. But then I suddenly got malaria. I was taken to this guard depot, and the medical officer sent me up, said you've got malaria, and sent me up to to this hospital, which was way up, way further. Because I think by then, Rommel had been defeated, and they were just getting ready to invade uh, Sicily, subsequently Italy. Anyway, so I got sent up to this hospital in a place called Guelma, for my malaria, where the thing I can remember is that you've got a bottle of Guinness every day. <laughs> <laughs> in this hospital ward, and you saw nurses. And anyway, I got sent back from there on a train. Now this was a great time. I got there was a train which came all the way back from the east, from the east, yeah, to the west. Coming back to Algiers, and I travelled with this group of guys from the Premier Commander Francais, which was the first French commander, who they, they'd been attached to, to what to, to or whatever. And they were all French, and I spoke a bit of French then because they had learnt a bit at school and I used it in Algiers, and I was sort of. And I came back with these guys, and we travelled in the cattle trucks open cattle trucks, the kind of hell ships that went to base with Belson, but just a few of us in one. I mean, this wasn't, this was just because that was all, these were the things on the train. I mean, I mean, great, six of us, lots of French wine, which they got on board. We got thoroughly pissed, they taught me the Chateau and I had to teach What's them. That? That's a song. Okay, it's a song. Oh, the, um, Edith Piaf. Edith Piaf. Yeah. And I, in return, I had to teach them 
say about the white kiss I drove, you know, there'll always be a... The war is over, the white cliffs of Dover, tomorrow, just, just you wait and see. That's yeah, to teach Vera Lynn, French, isn't it? Vera Lynn, yeah. yeah. And these French commanders, they were all about my age, you know. We were, we, I mean, we were just drinking wine, lying in these open cattle trucks, and the doors open, and the sun shining out, and the Guelman Mountains behind, and we had about five days, you know. We could have been out in the army. I mean, there was no discipline, there was nobody in charge of us, we'd just been... That yeah, was a great, that was really great. Anyway, then I got back to Algiers and I had to wait in the camp because the regiment I was with had by then moved to Italy. Right, okay. And then I got on a, sent on a troop camp, a it's... troop ship, and joined and went to Italy. You went to Italy? Yeah, and they, Which... were, they were at Manfredonia. I think it's fair to say Italy North... had a big impression on you. Yeah, it did. Yeah, the first impression was we landed at Taranto and I ate mussels that night. I was violently sick for a few days. Because <laughs> they were from the mud by the sewer at the entrance of Taranto, I don't know. Anyway, the, the regiment I rejoined, they were at Manfredonia, which is on the coast above Bari, somewhere like that. So was Which was a port, and they were defending that port. And was Torrance in the regiment with you? That's when I met Torrance. So you met him in Italy? He, I mean, people came and left regiments, you know, various things like that. Um, what, who was Torrance? Torrance was a Glaswegian who, of, I was going to say I'm prepossessing, but I mean, I'm now speaking in terms of his, the amazing ability of his conquests. <laughs> he was somebody who you would have described as not, particularly, not physically particularly prepossessing. He was pasty-faced, white. Was he redhead? If he's Glaswegian, no, he white-faced, brownish hair. Brownish he hair. Even had patches in it. He had bald patches. Bald patches. Well, well you know, and I feel there was nothing about Torrance, and he was totally down to earth. Very interesting. I'm not very interested in Torrance as yeah. such. I'm I've heard, brother. I've heard you tell the story of Torrance, oh, and I think it's good. Have this enormous. Sort of magnetic queen. He was like, as far as Torrance was concerned, women were iron filings. And he was a magnet. <laughs> it didn't matter what kind. I mean, anything. Anything that was biologically a woman. <laughs> anything that was, was biologically yeah, a woman. Okay. would be attracted. To it. it was like sort of negative and positive pole. I mean, I don't mean he acted like it. It was just observing him. This is what happened. And he had no discrimination. A man who could have had absolute discrimination didn't need, I mean, could have been totally discriminated. Did you ever know him be unsuccessful with a woman? No. Never. Never. Because, I mean, the way you describe it... He didn't waste his time, He didn't waste his time. I mean... (laughs) It wouldn't make any difference. He'd sleep with a sort of 60-year-old grandmother or... (laughs) Jeez. Or a 15-year-old virgin or a... Right. Model, or, you know, he so was, uh, there was no... no in some ways, I don't know. He was kind of interesting. Because I mean, he wasn't, I've he wasn't misogynistic. He wasn't... He liked... He, I've he known... genuinely love women. I've I mean, known men who've family. been very successful with women. But I've never known someone be completely successful with women, or completely indiscriminate as well. The men that I've known who've been very successful with women would only ever go for the most attractive woman in the room. It used to annoy me intensely. (laughs) 
When we were in Dubrovnik, which was a kind of a dead city, or, or at least a city very sort of isolated at night, it was very, it wasn't a sort of vibrant city, but it was just people in the house. The aristocrats in the Balkan world were welcoming the Allies in their own way. I mean, in other words, they're assuming we and you are together. And also they were very poor, very often, they were in bad circles. Anyway, Torrance and I met this girl and her mother. You know, I don't know I'm telling you, there's no limit to what podcasts can drag out of you. <laughs> um, we met this girl and her mother in Dubrovnik in this little cafe. Um, she was absolutely out of this world, for me, me my libido. Well, you were a very young man. Yeah. Torrance was a bit older. You know, he was maybe four years old. That sort of thing. He was She was very, very beautiful. And um, because we gave them American cigarettes and they smoked them and they, they when you give them, you give them a cigarette, they'd take it, even though they were still smoking one. They'd take it and put it away. And then it, through the conversation, which was carried out in my halting Italian, they, they were Serbian but they, or Croatian, but they spoke Italian. And Torrance didn't speak Italian. So through that com- halting conversation, it came out that the girl was prepared to sleep with you for money. I don't mean she was by nature and but at the time, in the, middle of the, in the middle yes. of the war, she would reason, sleep yeah. with people yeah. for yeah. money. Well, I hadn't got enough money. Okay. And Torrance said, and Torrance took a totally different He said, oh, give it up. No, no, I didn't want to bring, that's all, I didn't want to reduce money into it. Yeah. And Torrance said, oh, don't be stupid, you know. <laughs> give the girl the money. Give it and, and, he, and I hadn't got enough, and he got out what he'd got. I still hadn't got enough. So that went to get the money. When I came back, she'd gone. But I knew Williams. When I say I knew, you thought I was pretty sure that Torrance could have gone. But I mean, Torrance was a sort of buddy buddy kind of person. Anyway, he was sort of he was looking after me that night. You know, he would have done. You know, he he was trying to get me bed with this girl, not him. No, no, no. Although if he tried for himself, it'd probably be much easier because she needed the magnet. It just switched There would have been no need in yeah. the financial thing. Um, he wasn't my biggest friend. Torrance wasn't your biggest friend, no, but he I, had a certain impression on I your think psyche. I met him then. I might have met him a bit later. But I certainly, anyway, yes, he had a, yeah, he was a big impression. Because what, when, by the time when we did go to Yugoslavia, which was at the end of 1944. But well, why I went there is because I'd the 85th Heavy Attack Regiment, which I was in, was broken up. And they said all the wireless operators were going to the infantry reinforcement training depot in Naples to be transferred to the infantry. And we all travelled over in the middle of the night, we arrived there. Cold, in a cold, miserable, because there can be cold, miserable days in Italy. 
very early in the morning and the sergeant was delighted to see these bastards from the from the AK who he's going to make sure go into the infantry, infantry and go on the front yes, line yes, right he had a reasonable sense of resentment but being a sergeant he expressed it with considerable force um, so we were all desperately unhappy and thought, this is it, off we go, this is the end. And if you'd have gone, you'd have probably died, I yeah? could have died, yeah. You would have yeah. been on the front line. I'd have certainly had a ch- very good chance of becoming a killer. And you'd have actually seen combat, which I think... And you... I would have seen combat. Yeah. Uh, so if you hadn't have died, you'd have been scarred by it. I might have been involved in it, but I would have seen it. You'd have seen your friends die. I'd have seen my friends yeah. die. Yeah, it would have been And people right. who, even strangers dying in front yeah, of you is not great. Like, what's that? Film. American film series. series. Oh, the series Band of Brothers. Yeah, it would have been that. Yeah. Um, but in fact, as I think I've told you before, this officer comes along and says, "Comes just as we're lined up in front of the sergeant." I don't know what it is. No, I'm, um, I'm the same. Yeah, Terrible okay. for the, we, we're wasting this food that we yes, wouldn't have been around back in the day. Um, so you're stood in a line in a cold, in a line, wet, cold, miserable, thinking this is it. You're going to die. Yeah. And this uh, sergeant had said, you know, you're going to be stay here. We're going to sort you out, and you'll be trained by the time you leave. So we thought we're in for hell here. We're in for a sort of hellish time here, and then we're going to infantry. And this officer comes along and suddenly steps forward and says, uh, "You chaps, a minus operation, something like this. I can't remember the details. Maybe fabricating, but it's." The internal truth. Um, he said, you know, you chaps have been sent over here, now you're going in the infantry, but we have got a, an operation coming up. I can't tell you anything about it, but we need volunteers for it. Uh, anybody man who's prepared to volunteer for this, I, you know, I'd be interested to know, would you step forward? And of course, 14 people, or however many of us there were, there would have been about 14 or 16. We all stepped forward as great heroes, not as great heroes at all. Most <laughs> people are thinking, nothing can be worse. As bad as the front At line. least this is an unknown quantity. Yeah. You can't tell how this is going to work out. We know that if we stand here, you know if you stand here, you're going to be having six weeks hell in this place, then you're going in the infantry. Be it. Um, so everybody stepped forward. So we all went. So we all thought we're going on this great secret expedition, which we all assumed had some danger to it. But we were sent back to Bari, where we joined Nakak Regiment, <laughs> the Akak Regiment, which the idiots in the higher command had decided they would use as a field artillery regiment, because the Germans very successfully used their 88 millimeter gun as an anti-tank gun field artillery gun and anti-aircraft gun because they Germans had cleverly designed the gun myself. We had this bloody anti huge muzzle velocity and very powerful 3.7 gun but it was mounted on four wheels it had to be hauled by a bloody great tractor it was only designed to shoot up you know high up the sky and anyway decided probably because there's no longer any use of them yet fighting against the air force fighting against Germany non-existent airplanes that you're going to use against him some bright idiot you know some you can imagine the kind of person but sort of thought well let's use them let's send them to Yugoslavia support support out because they've got a commando over there support our commando chaps you know they they field guns why not I've always thought it would be a good idea 
So they, they decided this regiment would go to Yugoslavia. So that's what we were posted to. So they went to Yugoslavia. So you were part of the force that retook Yugoslavia something force, yeah. on behalf of the Allies. No, no, the partisans retook took Yugoslavia, but the commander, I think it was the second commander, Marine commander, had gone over there already to Dubrovnik. Right. And was in fact assisting the partisans in following the retreating Germans. So we now follow these retreating Germans with our guns. But the first gun fell off the road, the second <laughs> one overturned, the third one got, you know, it was this kind of thing. So you, they finally got one near it and they fired three shells and by then the Germans had gone beyond it <laughs> and it was a total farce. Okay. And that's that's what ended your war, that was the end no, of your well, war? Well, then we came back. All oh, right. Then we came back. Now I was posted to a light hacker regiment which raced up because by then the... The last sort of big drive was going up Italy because it was getting near night. Victory, you know, it was 1945. It was the end of 1944. 90, no, it was the beginning of spring of 1945. We raced up Italy in, in a jeep, you know, with his Bofa guns still behind. Saw a few corpses, but you know, basically, it was all over. And then the war ended. Monselici, I can remember. Thing with a girl in Mogliano. Uh, so you fell, you fell in love with a girl I in... I fell in love, well we thought we fell in love. We thought we fell in love. Nothing happened, it was chaperone, but we used to walk along the banks of the Adige, Maria. We wrote to one another sometime. Did, was it you walked along the banks of the, the Adige, river right. and the grandmother was it? She used to follow. She, she followed yeah, 30 nice paces thing. behind. It was, it was Latin culture, you know, chaperone. Chaperone. Yeah. But we did, you know, we managed to have the old kiss. Okay. Okay, well, so that sort of rounds that off. It's, it's boarding now, so we go to the gate, so we should wrap this up. Um, it's, uh, well, maybe we do a bit more actually on the, on the plane, because we've, we've, we've got uh, some more time. Yeah, so we'll do that. Okay, so we've, uh, we've got up and we're in the sky now, uh, in an aeroplane flying from uh, Stansted to Cologne. Is it Cologne? To Cologne, yes. And yes, this is Cologne. Yeah. We're in a, in a cloud? In a cloud, yes. What was the first time that you flew, flew in an aeroplane when you went off to war, I guess? I didn't fly in the war. Oh, you didn't fly? It's all uh, boats. First time I flew was after the war to, to, um, to, to France. Yeah, to Paris, I think. I think I flew to Paris. And I flew down to Yugoslavia years later with your when I met when I was with your mother. more of a it's more of a com, like it's much more common to fly now oh yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're, and we're, we were sort of talking in between we sort of were 
said, it's sort of a, it's an interesting thing that this podcast has so far been about sort of going to war with Germany, and now we're, we're sort of flying there on a holiday. Too quite happily. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're all we're all quite similar countries yeah. now. Across Europe. It's a very cliche thing to say, but I mean, I don't think there wasn't great hostility to the German people. There were some people who were very anti-German. I think the general opinion, you know, Hitler was so fascism was so sort of far out of the kind of traditional capitalists Western twentieth-century. Um, Society, you know, I mean, it was a, you know, Hitler was the enemy, Hitlerism was the enemy, the Nazis were the enemy. There was a sort of general hostility, of course, but you know, it wasn't deep. So, so I don't have any kind of profound feelings about returning to Germany. I mean, I well, went, you didn't go to Germany, did no, you? No, I went to Austria. Oh, that's right. We, because when the war ended, we went up into Austria sort of part of the occupying force. In very early days there was no fraternisation. That was an allied rule. So you had this great army of uh, people who'd been in sort of the army before years were told they shouldn't fraternise with Germans of any sex or age. Um, which didn't work very well. It soon broke down. But I mean, Austria anyway was a bit different, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I went up to Klagenfurt and I was up in the Austrian Alps for about six, seven, eight weeks. Then we went back to Italy. And I was in Italy until 1947. I mean, I came home on one leave, but you know, Continued. I mean, you waited for your particular group to demand, and it was done by first in, first out sort of thing. And um, during that time, you fulfilled various roles which were sort of necessary and occupied or whatever Europe. So uh, you know, I was an assistant, a kind of assistant military policeman. They formed sort of green caps to go with the red caps. A bit like a community support officer. Yeah, that sort of thing. You went out with him. Well, you had powers of arrest and all that. Did you arrest anyone? No, no, I didn't do that for long because I came home on my second, on my first leave. Because I came home on this interim leave before demobilisation. When I went back, I became a prison warder in Bologna. That is to say, uh, an army prison, because there were a very great number, there were a considerable number of uh, army deserters in Italy, as I believe they were in Germany later. So you were, you were a warden of British and yeah, French British and Allied? Well, uh, mostly, yeah, British, uh, I mean, they were mostly sort of ex-British criminals who deserted and joined up with Italian criminals. We were very amateurish warders because we weren't prison officers by training or nature. 
these guys used to sort of burrow out and get out under the walls. All sorts of ways. They're very ingenious. Or they chat you up, try to sort of make friends with you. So I did that for a bit. Then I was in Rome again. I was in a... I can't remember what we were doing there, but... He was stationed there for a bit, and then I eventually got... In 1947, I got demobbed. And, and that was the end of your war? Yes. Yeah. And that was the end of the war as well? I mean, you Well, the war had ended in 45. Oh, no. For, yeah, it ended in 45, April, but then the Japanese war was expected Went on to go on. Long, but of course, it didn't go on for very long because of Hiroshima. So it ended the end of that year, didn't it? Was there about a year between the two? Yeah, less. I mean, less people were expecting when the European war ended. I mean, a lot of people were expecting that they would have to be transferred to the Far East. But you know, that really fizzled out. So lucky for you and us, unlucky for the Japanese, probably. Yeah, except that I don't think the war would have lasted anyway. Seems to be the historical. Yeah, I guess it's pretty, it's pretty hard to carry on. They were very, very near to surrender. Yeah. They were, uh, I don't. I mean, this is a matter of. So it may not have even been. I don't think it was. I think it was an American determination to use it to see how it worked. While they had a, an excuse. They had an excuse. Yeah, While it looked think. acceptable. Yeah. Well, the military would naturally do that with any new weapon, wouldn't they? Yeah, the military mind would say, well, we've got a new weapon, we need to see if it works. We're out of the cloud now, there's the sun. We're above the cloud. Blue sky. When I first was on an aeroplane, I went to Japan. Oh, yeah, you did. You and I went were you? for a long time, 15, yeah, 12 hours. 12 hours on the plane, yeah. The other half of the... Uh, the axis of evil. Yeah, I was going to Japan, and uh, I remember looking down on the clouds for the first time, and I thought, "Wow!" I mean, I was so amazed by this landscape that yes. the tops of clouds are. Well, I remember that. I mean, going to America, I had flown a couple. When I flew to America in 1969, I remember flying over sort of Newfoundland, the ice floes, that sort of thing, and then we were low enough, all the weather was right, and you could see. Japanese what I say to everyone near the end is, I say to people, have you got anything you want to plug? I'd like to direct people to Lulu, but I can't remember what So you want people to go to your Lulu account? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sort of trying to drive them there, but I mean, I know that in actual fact, if it just exists as it sits there now, without any direction to it, nobody's ever going to visit it. Nobody's going to get there. So all your writing is on Lulu, which is... Yeah, it's on my store site at Lulu. And under it's the name... It's freely downloadable or purchasable. Are you, is it under your pseudonym, is it, or is it under your... Alan Hubbard. Alan Hubbard. Yeah. At Lulu. Yeah. Um, I'll uh, stick in a clear... www.lulu.com dash Alan Hubbard, I Okay. And it's all available there for free as PDF. As PDF downloads. Or if you want to buy the paperback, you pay the cost but that's only the cost of production, yeah. you're not, I don't Dad doesn't get any. I guess the last thing then, 
as well is this the muleteers oh that was in Dubrovnik oh, the muleteers yeah, when we landed in Dubrovnik yeah. the AK guns and those field guns in support of the commandos who were fighting with the partners I was left behind in a captured Italian caravan at, um, in the port near Dubrovnik to listen for various signals. Because I was on my own, I was, uh, the regiment had gone on, or the battery had gone on ahead, I was attached to this company of Italian muleteers for rationing, etc. Not for any discipline, obviously. In fact, it was I was incredibly free, you know, I was just sitting in this caravan. I had certain things to listen for, and otherwise I was a free agent. And I spoke a fair bit of Italian then, and I got on very well with these Italians. We always drink wine and that together and go down to the port. And the thing was that they were a company, they were um, an Italian Alpine battery, which meant that their guns were carried on the backs of mules. You know, one mule would have a wheel each side of it, and another mule would be carrying the barrel and that. And when they got to where they wanted to fire the gun, they would take them off the various mules and assemble them. So they weren't doing anything there except sitting around like I was in Dubrovnik. They'd probably been brought across and nobody really thought what they were going to do. So it was, it was a very farcical campaign, the whole staff campaign. Anyway, so there they were with their mules in these kind of long stables which either were there already or they'd built, which were just sort of a long line of mules in stalls like horses are. Anyway, the thing was that when you went down to town and you all drank, and when you came back, you all had to play this game in which you went along the line of mules, opening their mouths. They're quite fierce, some of them. Um, I mean, it was ridiculous, like many drunken things were. And you would sort of, you know, you get hold of the mules' lower jaw and his nose. And Open his jaw. I don't quite know what the point was. Just consented by the attendants to be a sort of game of drunken men. You got drunk and you put your hand oh, in the mule. Yeah, well, you know, I took part in it. I'm I mean, sure they, I would have done it myself. They were much more experienced with mules than I was. And some mules are more fierce than others. Some objected to it more than others. But, you know, it didn't just happen once. I mean, it was a kind of... A regular thing. A regular thing when you came back, yeah. So, I guess uh, and on that strange, on that strange note, with Dad putting his hand in the mule's mouth in Dubrovnik, um, yeah, we'll say goodbye from this one, from this podcast. I hope to do a couple more with Dad over this journey, which will won't come out chronologically. They'll come out here and there. Um, so that's goodbye from me, and uh, do you want to say goodbye to the listeners? Goodbye from me. Cheers. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Facebook, 
it's Getting Better Acquainted, have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. 